0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah
1: study. We are in the words of Torah that start to wind up the book of Deuteronomy. We only have one more parsha in the book of Deuteronomy, and that, of course, is what we read at Simcha Torah, when we end Deuteronomy, good morning, and begin Genesis again. So we are coming to the end. You can always tell, like the Torah scroll gets like massive, right, on one side. <laughs> um, you have to be careful who you ask to lift, lift and dress Torah at this part of the year because it's like incredibly lopsided, incredibly heavy. Um, all right, so we talked last time We studied. We studied Parsha VaYelech, and I was telling you how sad I was this year for Moshe. Um, And if you'll recall, at the end of last week's Parsha, he says, uh, Chapter. 31, verse 29. For I know that when I'm dead, you will act wickedly and turn away from the path that I enjoined upon you and that in time to come, misfortune will befall you for having done evil in the sight of God, vexing God by your deeds. Then Moses recited the words of this poem to the very end in the hearing of the whole congregation of Israel. That poem is what we're about to read. That poem is Ha'azinu. So it is the poem that deals with um, what will be the betrayal of the Israelites of their agreements. Remember, this is placed in the mouth of the generation that is entering the land of Israel. Um, Of course, this is written long after. Uh, Heaven and earth will be called as witness, um, which is very much the usual uh, for the prophets to start Right. When they want to start a speech, they uh, want to censure Israel. Because that's their job. Right. Only Jews canonize our critics. Right. So we, the prophets are always coming to complain about Israel and how Israel's getting it wrong and messing everything up. Uh, and so heaven and earth often are called to be witnesses uh, against yeah. Israel uh, by the prophet. All right, so somebody somebody, read for us at 32 1.
0: Give ear, O heavens, let me speak. Let the earth hear the words I utter. May my discourse come down as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like showers on young growth, like droplets on the grass. In the name of Adonai I proclaim, give glory to our God, the rock whose deeds are perfect. Yea, all God's ways are just, a faithful God, never false, true and upright indeed. Unworthy children, that crooked, perverse generation, their baseness has played God false. Do you thus require a deny O dull and witless people? Is, is not this the Father who created you, fashioned you, and made you endure? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of ages past. Ask your parents who will inform you, your elders who will tell you. When the Most High gave nations their homes and set the divisions of humanity, God fixed the boundaries of peoples in relation to Israel's numbers. For Adonai's position is this people, Jacob, God's own allotment. God found them in a desert region, In an empty howling waste, God encircled them, watched over them, guarded them as the pupils of God's eye, like an eagle who rouses its nestlings, gliding down to its young. So did God spread wings and take them, bear them along on pinions. Adonai alone did did guide them, no alien God alongside. God set them uh, atop the highlands, To feast on the yields of the earth, nursing them with honey from the crag and oil from the flinty rock, curd of kine and milk of flocks, with the best of lambs and rams of Bashan and he goats, with the very finest wheat and foaming grape blood was your drink. So Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat and gross and coarse. They forsook the God who made them and spurned the rock of their support. They incensed God with their alien things, vexed God with abominations. They sacrificed to demons, no gods, gods they had never known, new ones who came but lately, who stirred not your forebears' fears. You neglected the rock who begot you, forgot the God who labored to bring you forth. All
1: right, let's stop there for a moment. All right. This is a psalm, and we've talked a little bit about what makes uh, poetry clever and literary. There's a couple of genres going on here, um, but so remind us all what makes Hebrew, this kind of biblical Hebrew poetry clever and literary. What, what's the device? It's not about rhyme. What's it about? First letter,
2: apparently.
1: So sometimes it's using the first letter. No
2: punctuation.
1: Hmm? No punctuation. Well, there's no punctuation ever. Well, it, it repeats. In Torah. So Robert, say it again? It repeats. It's repetitive. Alright. So the way that biblical poetry is clever is that you say the same thing two different ways.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's the that's the mechanism. <laughs> it's not rhyme, it's not it's not uh, what, what's the other one? Meter, right? Or rhythm. That's, that's not what you're trying as the poet to, to use, to craft something that people will go, oh, look at that. It's saying the <laughs> same thing two different ways. And can you continue to do that and can you do that in a way that's um, literarily sound, right? So, may my discourse come down as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. It's the same idea, said two ways. Right? That's that's often that's a big part of. So it feels repetitive, but to the biblical, poetic ear, that that's what they're listening for. It's emphasis. It's emphasis, and it's like, oh well, how will they say that? You say something that's like, oh well, how are they going to say that again? The, again, right? In a way that's that's interesting. How okay. is so sometimes what we have, which is good that you ask, um, Mehmet, is we, um, in, you get alliteration in the Hebrew that you don't get in the English often. Um, and I mean, it's not that it's one device. There's many devices, but what you miss from Hebrew um, into English often is the alliteration um, of certain words that, that you know, follow um, in a row. So I'll, I'll point it out when I see it. Um, all right, so like showers on young growth like droplets on the grass, right, this, this is the this is the way it's written this, uh, since we know more about ancient near eastern traditions and ancient near eastern literature um, this now we know belongs to a genre where the conquering vassal, yes the conquering king or queen Um, charges the conquered vassal nation with disloyalty. So this is a testimony against uh, sorry I said vassal king to start with. The conquering king is charging the vassal king, the vassal nation with uh, disloyalty. Because remember the conquering king gets to say you worship and serve only me, because I did this. For I conquered you. I went to war. I did this. I did that. Therefore, I, Queen Amy, have the right to demand of you exclusive loyalty. That is a covenant arrangement. Yeah. And in 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 uh, turn, I agree to protect you from neighboring whoever who wants to start something with you, I will protect you. Um, but you owe me exclusive loyalty. This we know is the covenant that we see in Torah. God is king. I, God, am yud heh I took you out of Egypt. I took you out of the house of bondage. Therefore, right, I have exclusive rights to your loyalty. And if you break that, I am an Elkanah. Right, I get to express kin'a, what gets horribly translated into English as jealousy. I am a jealous God. <laughs> I am a God who is entitled to kin'a if you break the agreement of exclusivity to me. Is it vengeance? It's, it's what you're entitled to if somebody strays from loyalty to you when you have a claim on their exclusive loyalty. I don't think there's, I don't know of an English word that um, vengeance may be what it looks like in terms of what's going to happen, but what God experiences is kina, right? So it's vengeance is what's going to happen, maybe, but that's a consequence. God's experience when Israel strays is kina. That's a betrayal. Yeah. It's what God is entitled to feel or experience. Because God was entitled to our exclusive loyalty, and we betrayed that loyalty. Um, that's what this poem is. This poem is a testimony against a vassal nation that has betrayed its exclusive loyalty to the conquering king. All right, we know that from other ancient Near Eastern literature. All right, so, so it makes sense, right? God is just. <laughs> All God, right? Look at verse four. Tzul, hatzul. The rock. Tamim po'alo. All of God's doing is tam. Sometimes translated simple. If you go to a Jewish cemetery and look at headstones, you see ishtam. Here lies a tam person. Tam is a good thing. Tom is a good thing. So, God... Tamim po'alo. All of God's doings are tamim. Are tam. So, straightforward, simple, clean, good. I mean, I mean, it doesn't say good, but a, tam implies all of that. I thought tam was flavor. Ta'am. Oh, ta'am. Ta'am is flavor. But then it gets... Then, like in English, how we... Mush everything right. together, so you will hear tam, but it's ta'am. But, like, uh, what is it in Yiddish? Tam? Ah, tam is
2: taste.
1: Yeah, so that's what she was saying, flavor, taste. So it comes from ta'am in Hebrew, uh, but, like, Hebrew speakers, like all of us, are lazy, and, like, you just, what you hear is tam, but it's ta'am.
0: In Yiddish also, the general language right. is
1: Against, uh-huh. protection against, Kina. against what? Yeah. Kina. Kina. Kineget ayin hara. Uh, against yeah. the evil eye. Yes. It gets all smished. <laughs> yes, uh,
3: verse
1: 4. Okay. Second word in Hebrew. It's plural because it's talking about all of God's po'alim, all of God's actions, right? Hatsuh, the rock, tamim po'alo. Tam are all of God's actions, but it's in plural, tamim. Yeah? And now we're going to say the same thing another way. Kichodrachav mishpat. For all of God's ways are just. Right? So God here is right. God is blameless. God is El Emunah, the Avel. God is El Emunah, a faithful God. God is faithful fifty dollars to your favorite charity. <laughs> <laughs> El Emunah Vein God is only emunah's only uh, faithful with no falsity. Sadiq Vyasharhu Right? Sadiq, Sedek righteous, Vyashar and straight is God. Right? So it's the case is being made very clear. Who's in the right and who's in the wrong? Right? Um, and so what happens to this amazing, wonderful el Emunah this Sadiq V'yashar God, whose ways are Tamim? What happens to this poor God? That God gets children unworthy of God. That crooked, perverse generation, that generation, their baseness has played God false. God who was only faithful and only righteous and only good gets played right by this horrible, awful generation of teenagers. So is he speaking to those people um, as being
4: these teenagers now, or is he talking about what's going to happen in the future? You tell me.
1: Oh good question. <laughs> <laughs> so this generation hasn't screwed up yet. Yeah. They're not in the land yet. What's going to happen? They're going to, God took you. God found you. Actually, we were studying this at Hartman. Um, I never knew this before. But there is one theory of um, th- not theory. There is there is a tra- a tradition that there were seventy gods, and each god got a people and What does our poem tell us and it, they want to argue this is a, a remnant of one of those traditions that um, look at verse nine oh, yeah. right we 're saying the same thing two different ways: amo for for Amo, God's people, okay, I'm just going to use the Hebrew, even though I hate to do it, um, but it's, it'll be clearer. His people, Amo, right, is the chelek, is the portion for vav Meaning, vav Bavhei got us. When all the peoples were divided among the 70 gods, the chelek that went to vav Bavhei was us among his people but it wasn't because God picked us Yaakov Yaakov was God's allotment God's inheritance God didn't get to pick Luck of the draw. The luck of the draw. And what kind of luck does, does Yudhei Vavhei have? Yeah.
3: Bad. Bad. Mm-hmm. bad.
1: Really bad luck. We don't
3: know how bad all the other groups were, though. Exactly. <laughs> this yeah.
1: is very true, but our poem is not concerned with them. Yes. Yes. Right? Yes. Only with the fact that God got a crappy deal. Yudhei Vavhei got a crummy deal. Yudhei Vavhei got a faithless, faithless nation, a faithless people.
3: Because you need, that group needed a really strong, good parent. You know, the good kids didn't need such a perfect God.
1: So are you, so, okay, so say more. Well,
3: I'm just saying, you know, it's not to feel, you know, poor God got this crummy group of kids. It was like, you know, they give the best counselor at the camp the hardest cabin. Right? To
1: shape them up. So, okay, so that's a lovely sort of way to understand that. maybe how the match that's happened. It
3: um, doesn't change the facts. Doesn't feel <laughs> to the author
1: <laughs> like this is great for Yudhey Vovey. Right? right? Yudhey Vovey is devastated that this people. Does this and and behaves this way. Who did the choosing? Ah, now that is a whole other conversation. Um, Right, so it's a whole other thing. How does it happen? Don't parents once in a while say that to themselves? How did I get this? (laughs) Once once in a That has never happened to me. (laughs) Never. (laughs) Most of the time, that's what my mother said about her children. I remember very distinctly as a child being told, May you have one just like Like you. And the heavens opened, the words went up, and it has been fulfilled.
0: (laughs) After yeah, <laughs> the session, then we're sitting with somebody and he says, What does chosenness mean? We'll say, Forget it, this is all an accident. We just are, it's serendipitous. Yeah,
1: yeah, there's definitely a strain. So does everybody
0: choose us? So why does everybody hate us if it's just an
1: accident? Well, <laughs> it's partly partly we're the ones who emphasized Bacharbanu Mikol HaAmim, who chose us from among all the nations. So if we shut up
4: anti-Semitism would disappear. Um,
1: I would love to believe that that's the case. But not quite. Uh, but not quite. I believe anti-Semitism is rooted in some other junk that isn't going away. But it can't be chosenness, then. If you, if you read this literally, I mean, it wouldn't be chosenness. Right. That's right. In this tradition, it is not chosenness. God got stuck with us. Um, which makes sense, right? If you're if you're writing from the the critical end of Israel betraying monotheism or not even monotheism, their allegiance to Yehi Vavhei, it makes sense that that it's like, well, could, God didn't pick this, right? God got stuck with this. Did I see another hand? Yeah, Robert. Yeah,
0: I'm, I'm trying to understand the, the, the timing of your comment that this was believed to be sort of an old tradition that it got grafted in because. Uh, many, most of the poems that we see in the Torah are older, they're pre-old texts, like the Psalms, C, whatever. This, however, being in Deuteronomy, it was not thought to be old, but it's referring to an old tradition?
1: There are or is some, old? There are some uh, of course, scholars argue, because we can't know, um, but I'll read to you from my notes, um, meaning the notes in my um, version, the JPS version from the uh, excursus at the back G- they, they talk about some parallels to some other texts um, these parallels probably indicate that Ha'azinu was written earlier than the prophets and Psalms 78 and 106 for it seems more likely that several prophets and psalmists were influenced by one classic poem, this one um, than that the poem borrowed from several prophets who lived centuries apart and whose prophecies may not have been well known beyond their own disciples, right, until it gets published. Um, but only their group, the school of, remember we've talked about the school of Jeremiah, that it isn't Jeremiah, it's the school of Isaiah, the school of Jeremiah. Often their work wouldn't have been known outside that circle until it's published and we're holding it in our hands and reading it, right, at the high holidays, <laughs> right, right? Um, So it's unlikely that Ha'azinu, that has very close parallels to those prophets, it's very unlikely that Ha'azinu pulled from them. It's much more likely that they all pulled from Ha'azinu. So that's an argument scholars used to say. This is a text older than Jeremiah and uh, at least two of the Psalms that it has something uh, in common with. Yeah, Uh, A relatively early date for the poem is suggested by its content and language as well. Commentators have long sought to date the poem by identifying the enemy and the events it describes. For traditional commentators who ascribe the poem to the time of Moses... Um, dating the events was an exegetical exercise and a religious one as well blah 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 for critical commentators like us the date of the events might provide a clue to the date and historical context in which the poem uh, was composed so I'm happy to give you the excursus to read further um, and it was this poem was used in uh, second temple times so according to Josephus copies of Hazinu and other biblical poems were kept in the temple Rabbinic sources report that the Levites read parts of the poem in the temple while the uh, Musaf offering was being made on Shabbos. They completed it over a six week cycle and then began again. So when Musaf was happening, when the the extra sacrifice was happening on Shabbos, they would read a, a hunk of the poem. So it took six weeks, they read six hunks, and then started again. It is interesting to note in this connection that one of the Qumran manuscripts apparently contained only the poem and was not part of a longer Torah scroll. So perhaps it was used for reading the poem on some similar occasion or for teaching the poem by heart as chapter 31 commands. So even in Qumran, they had a standalone ha'azinu. So it's like, why was... It wasn't like part of Deuteronomy or part of you know different Torah texts. It's just this one standalone copy of Hazinu. So clearly, it was used, you know, as a one pager for some for some ritual purpose or for or teaching purposes.
4: Does orthodoxy uh, agree with the?
1: The choice of who wrote what, when? Heck to the no! <laughs> right, because this is all written in God's hand and God. This is Moshe. Moshe gets the whole, gets all of this yeah. at the same time. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we have here this image of God as being true. God finds uh, Israel in a desert region in an empty, howling waste. God engirds Israel, watches over Israel, guards Israel as the pupil of God's eye. And of course, this very beautiful piece in uh, 11, eagle's not a great translation of nesher. Nesher is probably a, um, the English word just went away, uh, a raven, eagle, probably not. Um, Nesher, something with a wide wingspan, um, and like a Nesher ya ir kino. So the, and here you hear kino. His kin, he is kina. So this is right. It's a play on words. It's ya uh, as a necher, um what, what is this when you're doing this, like a hummingbird, right? You know, like kind of, you know, like hovers over in a good way over its young, um, but it's but the word kina's in there, right?
4: Ravens also have the the uh, aura of prophecy.
1: They do. <laughs>
4: yes, in many in many much literature in English.
1: Okay, um, so some kind of connection, right to. Divine wisdom, or whatever, right? Al goes lav So So uh, the so here's the the mother bird, essentially, right? Uh, kind of rousing its young and um fluttering or whatever it's called, hovering <coughs> over its young. So god oh wait, sorry. so God is going to spread god 's wings right and carries the fledglings on the wings, right so this is how birds teach their little ones to fledge they kind of boot them out of the nest and um but, but fly underneath, right? So they can catch them and protect them from underneath. First of all, danger often comes right up at them, but it's also um, a way to, to fledge them. You're teaching them to fly, but you're giving them a place to land. So this is the image of God and Israel, Right, that God's wings are spread and Israel is on God's wings, God alone did guide this crazy people right, no alien God at God's side, this is important right, no other gods were helping out no other gods were in the nursery, only yud heh vav single parent all by God's self raised up this smart-alecky right, people, and took this people and set them atop the highlands to feast on the yield of the earth, fed Israel fra- honey from the crag. <laughs> so really, honey from the selah, from the rock, right? The shemen mechalamish and oil from the flinty rock. So we get that God, of course, gives them this land, this amazing land that's going to produce enough for them to get fat. We've heard this before. Yes? Israel gets fat and when Israel gets fat, Israel gets lazy. Lazy and complacent. Right? And says, "I did this. This is my accomplishment." All right? And forgets God who gave them this amazing uh, land with all of its wonderful um, ways that it supports uh, human beings forsook the God right? Yeshua to. what is Yeshua? Yeshua salvation so scorned the Tzur Yeshua to, the rock of this people's salvation Ye- Yeshua is Jesus no, but isn't it the root for the word? no? <laughs> Yeshu, Yeshua. Sometimes it's different from. Um, it's not the same as uh, savior, so, but it is salvation. I mean, there. So it it shares. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a proper name, Yeshua. Yoshua, Joshua, Joshua right? That's, right? I mean, okay. it's got those, okay, you know, resonances, but it's um, but it's a proper name. Got it. Okay. Um, Yakni uhu. Oh, this is tangled. Some of the Hebrew is. I mean, it's a very different form of Hebrew, so it's how, it's part of how they date some of this stuff, right? So this whole idea that God continues to be the support. God continues to be the. Savior, God continues to be loyal and faithful, and uh, they turn to alien things, vexing God with abominations, right? Turning to gods they have never known. New ones who came but lately, right? All those Johnny come lately, gods, right? Who stirred not your ancestors' awe right so they neglected the rock that begot them forgot the God who brought them forth so this is a condemnation of Israel tell me what we read about when we read about Josiah what happened under Josiah what was his religious reform about what happened tell me some things that happened that shocked you y'all were all horrified What did Josiah take out of the temple? Prostitutes. They're prostitutes. Holy, sacred prostitutes. And idols, people. Y'all were horrified. Idols came out of the temple. How could idols be in the temple? Well, they were. Well, what's shocking
4: now is that this is an admission that there were other gods
1: in competition. But we know that. Yeah. We know that, right? So we know that. That's why we have prophets. Because the people are always worshiping other gods. This is not monotheism. Right? No. Monotheism is very late. As far, the way we understand monotheism, that there's only one God, that is not, not biblical. Dead.
4: Not
1: dead. The Bible says, you only get to worship yud Hey vav hei. Shema Yisrael yud Hey Eloheinu. Right? Listen up, Israel. vav Vavhei is our God. Not Baal, not Asherah, not Isis, not Astarte, right? Not Hercules. Your God is Yudhei Vavhei. You don't worry about all those other gods. Don't worry about what's going on so with them. Seeing, That's not yours.
4: It's a real transition in societal norms to go from all these gods, gods fighting over who gets whom. And settling down finally into God, our God gets us, and the rest of them just kind of go about their way. How
1: and? Long, how long did that take? It? A long time. <laughs> and, and in every single period of Israelite occupation it's of the on land, on. it's gone on. We have found. Uh, idols. We have yeah. found yes. representations of Asherah of the feminine divine, right? Of, there was never one period of Israelite inhabiting Israel where there was monotheism. Are we okay. still doing Never. That? Yeah. Syncretistic worship continued. Right? We saw it under Josiah and and they were destroyed not much after that. Josiah's taking sacred prostitutes out of the temple for crying out loud. <laughs> That was going on in Josiah's time. I'm glad you didn't say, "For Christ's sake." I know, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> There's times I wish. So, um, so that, so, so it never stopped. But there is a transition from there are other gods and we don't worship them to an idea that there is only one God, and admitting that there are other gods is now its own form of disloyalty.
0: Was that by the but, time Christianity was established? You think? This-
1: you know, I, I'm not sure. I have to think about it. So interesting. Um it's it was clear but Christianity's one
0: form. By 300. It was pretty clear that these, there was only one God. Who do?
2: Well, I,
1: I personally think that Christianity is in part a response to the longing that people have always had for the demigod, for okay. the the. The hero who is part divine, part human. Right? right? Is it really monotheism? I don't, know. I don't you know. There's this longing for another divine being that's more accessible than the. God who has by the time of Deuteronomy retreated into God's heaven and is not so accessible. God's not walking around the garden in the heat of the day anymore people, right? God is more withdrawn and I think Christianity is an answer to a very old need to access the Godhead differently, more intimately so, and remember that, that idea is around in the Middle East like forever Jesus is not the first incarnation, if you will, of that idea, right? That there is this idea that the God dies and rises and the king is the symbol and has a symbolic death and then rises and, you know, so it's the Christ. um, So Jesus as Christ is a new idea, but Christ is not a new idea. The risen God is not a new idea, nor is the divine cohabiting with a human being, Right? Think of Zeus. Right. Mm-hmm. The Greeks and the Romans. Um, it happens all the time. So that idea is, is, is there. And yeah. Christianity is just one manifestation of it. So is, you know, is it pure monotheism? <laughs> I think it, it's fulfilling a lot of the needs that, that monotheism didn't answer. Since I watched all the episodes mm-hmm. of Crown, The Crown, one of them said that
4: Queen or king if it was was there, um, invested with
1: being godly and our God. Mm-hmm. And it's mentioned that, and I'm just trying. to Well, out. they they, I think First, we ju- we need to fix. Yeah, I need we need to fix that a little bit. The they they rule by divine right. Mm-hmm.
4: So, what's, why divine? That God chose them.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Or else, how do you enforce your right to be the king? Yes, of course. Because God put you there. How, is, how does the prophet have any authority? How does the prophet have the authority to come criticize the leadership, the the king? God forbid. How? Because God told them to. Like you got you got to go, you got to go higher than what you're right accessing in order to say right. Who and who crowns the king and queen? Who crowns them? Who puts the crown on their head? Poaches, the head of the church. Of course, of course. Right, right. Yes? Well, look at our, uh, our obsession with Marvels. With what? Marvels. Marvel? Oh, like the and comics? Mean, yeah. yeah right. Exactly the superhero. The genre yeah. is. Right? Dominating. That's exactly right. There's, so there's this, we, we want God to be God, sort of, um, but then we want some kind of mitigating in between human and God. Right? We want that.
4: It shows the limitation
1: of our own ego, absolutely, right. or or a way to bridge, right? What feels mm-hmm. like too big um, a divide. All right, so this so this poem is uh, obviously one that is coming to explain what happens to Israel. Yeah, because mm-hmm. terrible things happen to Israel, terrible things, and we know that they have to explain that right so this poem comes to explain that that they're going to get right they're the, they're getting the consequences of turning against this faithful amazing god um, and by the way many uh, of these words are lifted uh, and are said at a funeral this is traditional orthodox funeral language hatsor tamim poalo that That line we read that the rock god's ways are perfect is read at a funeral, so you can still see the need to understand and explain how this could happen, right Tat Tami Paulo Paulo God is perfect, right, and all God's ways are just, um which is why. I hate that (laughs) (laughs) literature
0: doesn't it also mean that you die because you sinned
1: so it doesn't go that far it doesn't go that far if they read the next (laughs) verses yes but they stop right they don't include those verses
0: Mm -hmm. okay but you still get uh, the Holocaust and all that was because uh, 90% uh, 60% of the lawyers and doctors in Berlin before the war, were Jewish and were living well, uh, fat, if you will. And so, is the Holocaust a punishment for that? We've
1: had this conversation lots of times. Mm-hmm.
3: Okay. Last but week? Is there such a thing as punishment? Sure. I mean, the Holocaust itself, right? Like, everything, and I hate to say this because my ancestors, my past so, um, but uh, many, but. Uh, from a young age, uh, I kind of learned that and came to the acceptance. Of my outlook is that kind of everything. As hard as it is to swallow, happens for a reason. Yeah. So, so it's not necessarily because doctors or people are people with you know entitlement in sense. It's just why it's that some people survive for
2: two years? If so you,
1: if we, if George that. is pointing to the traditional argument. People who have to defend an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God have to have a reason. It happens for a reason. What's the reason?
3: Well, in order to accept such atrocities, I mean, um, if if you, in the the act of forgiveness, right?
1: Um, No, we're not talking forgiveness. Everything happens for a reason. What's the reason? We stray. To God is all good. God is all powerful. God is all knowing. So we it's that's, that's the only It's the only answer. The only answer is we deserved it. Or, or one of those has to go away. Then God is not all powerful or all good or like all knowing. Those who died, die in vain instead of celebrating the lives that lived. Fortunately, that's not our theology. Fortunately, I don't have an all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing God. That's the goodness. I don't have that, so I don't have a problem. Right? Theologically, I don't have a problem. My God is not all-powerful. It's not a being. It doesn't make decisions. It doesn't kill people and not kill people. Right? So, um, But people who have a, this God, right, have to, yes. So George is lifting up the the traditional we-got-fat fill in the blank in Switzerland in Vienna in Berlin and the consequences
0: And you know first time I heard it was just a couple of weeks ago someone told me they didn't like the Jewish God and I really didn't know what it meant but this is now explaining it
1: <coughs> now you understand the God they don't like <clears throat> right well, it's, it's a hard it's a hard God to relate to for sure for sure, um, but it's also a comfort to know that God doesn't, never does anything wrong. You may not understand it, but God can never do anything wrong. Hatsur tamim po'alo. All God's ways are mishpat, justice. So whew, I can relax. It's a lot no. harder to live in a world where that God is not in control. No, you
2: can't relax, because if God is not that powerful,
1: and it's all up to us. Aha. Uh-huh. So, right? That's exactly yes. right. That's so that was going to be the end of my sentence, right? Thank you, Sarah, as always, ahead of me. So, right, that's right. I can't relax because I don't have a god who's tamin I don't have that. That there's some ultimate justice that I can't see. I don't have that. I have to live with the fact that terrible things happen because there's not a being in control of it all. I have to live with the fact that Nazis get to do what they do and then go live, you know, in South Africa or wherever they go, you know, to live these lovely lives of wealth and luxury. So I have to live with that. So I believe a mature spirituality for me is about, okay. so how do I live with that? What is the meaning I make out of that? The fact that we live in that kind of a world, right, where there isn't going to be a God who's going to make sure that... That's Justice why, happens. That's
2: why we support the Southern Poverty Center.
1: That's right, because we really do believe it's up to us. We really do believe that, right? And and as Reconstructionist Jews, you know, we we don't talk about a Mashiach. We don't talk about a Messiah. We don't talk about God bringing Judgment Day and everything's gonna be all worked out. And now we'll understand how something horrible like the Holocaust could happen. Right now we'll understand. We don't have that. We have Yemea Mashiach. We have the messianic age, and we believe it is up to us to bring the messianic age. So that's
3: that's the shift from like being
1: conservative. Okay, I'm new here, by the way. We're glad you're here. Um, Yes, that's a big shift. That is why Kaplan left the conservative movement. Because ultimately, when pushed to the wall, those folks had to say, yes, Kashrut comes from Sinai, right? On some level, this stuff originates there. And Kaplan and his students really, when pushed to the wall, you can say it's divinely inspired. There was a come and then, and then, and then, and then but when pushed to the wall, they would say it originates with us, reaching for the divine. Now, That might not sound like a big difference to a lot of people, but you come to a conversation like this, it's a big difference, difference, (laughs) right? It's a really big
3: difference. Um, So I'm just trying to think this through, so bear with me. I find that people who are in very powerless situations, um, a detained immigrant, for example, the only thing that they can find solace in sometimes is that God has a plan. But the difference is, I think, it's not that I did something bad to deserve being here. It's that there must be some reason, (coughs) some test, maybe, or some challenge. But but that lack when there is no sense of I can do something, then it is a comfort, like a natural human reflex to think God must. That's because that's all that's left. Is that not
1: right, so I want to I, I want to say yes. It is a very human instinct, right? I need some way to make some sense out of this that that it doesn't, doesn't leave me blame. feeling completely. Right. And
3: that also doesn't blame myself, which is you can't find in this text. Here it is. Right. You might want to say, well, there's you know, God's all powerful, and and there must be a reason the Israelite was uh, you know went through such horrible situation. But if you're going to Go there, you have to say they brought it on themselves.
1: If you're reading this text, so there's some other. All right, so out. so yes, so I want to say yes to your in, to your your comment about instinct, and I want to say it is not the only way to find meaning. There are lots of refugees who are completely powerless and do not need that theology. That's all I'm going to say. The, yes, that's one, mm-hmm. right. one comfort are people who believe this is a test. I can handle anything. God won't give me more than I can bear. But when you get pushed to the wall on that theology, so your eight-year-old has cancer. Mm-hmm. Really? And I'm being tested and my eight-year-old has cancer? That's how you're testing me? Frankly, that is not comforting to me. Mm-hmm. And it puts me in a really complicated relationship with a God I'm supposed to love who tests me with that. Now, some people would say it's a supreme act of faith to say, I can't understand why God would pick this particular test and bring this on my child to test me. But I have to have faith. I understand how that's comforting, and 100% billions of people are comforted that way. There are millions of other people who do not find that comforting. I, I frankly find it terrifying to believe that the trials of my life have been brought to me on purpose by a God who is testing me. I left that theology. I walked out because I said, this is twisted. This is really twisted. I I want nothing to do with that God. I'd seen too many things, including pictures of piles of children's bodies from the Shoah. No, thank you. God brought this on the Jewish people, like you right know, so for some people, yes, I totally understand that that's a comfort for others of us. It just feels twisted and sick to be in relationship to a divinity who behaves like that. you know people who have ultimate power and behave in really disgusting and irresponsible ways, and you're supposed to just go, "Oh, but you know they're the authority so um so yes. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes and yes. And so I just want to really, I want to be clear, there are a lot of people who do not choose to go there.
4: Amy, the other comfort that I've seen growing up in the South, especially, is that we may have to live this life with all these disasters, Mm -hmm. but in the afterlife, we'll be rewarded for our good.
1: And that that is is certainly part Mm -hmm. of our tradition as well. Olam haba, the world to come. right? The world to come is where it'll all be Okay. That's not an emphasis
4: in Judaism at
1: all. It depends. It depends when you're talking. Yeah. It depends when you're talking. When things are really terrible for the Jews, you see a lot of writing about Olam Haba when it's really terrible. The Inquisition, You know, when, when, when pogroms are ha- when things are really bad for the Jews, you see a lot of writing about the afterlife, about the world to come. Right. But in general, it is not the focus, because the focus is Life. L- live your life here the way you're supposed to, and then you don't need to worry about right anything else. Yes. Is
0: the Jew in the Torah <coughs> we're talking about ever good enough? Say again. Is the Jew here ever good enough? are you always saying? It's. I'm trying my best, but I must have failed. I it's not me. Failing. I must be failed. It's
1: not the individual. There's,
0: it is us as a collective.
2: I don't know. It's the people.
1: Correct. We're never
2: good enough. Correct. But it's what a
1: shitty idea. <laughs> 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 um, it depends who you talk to. <laughs> yeah,
2: it
1: depends depends which reconstructionist you talk to. Can you just explain what you just said? What, what did I just say?
3: <laughs>
1: There's not like a reconstructionist. <laughs> dogma that says you must believe that so some reconstructionists like to imagine there's something else past this you know um, uh, me personally I believe it's all energy energy can't really go away it changes but this is energy it's just frozen energy right and we call it matter but it's energy Like any atom is 99% energy. So energy is energy. It just shifts form. So do I believe there's something after this? Yes. Because I believe that we are each, as Rami Shapiro says so beautifully, a wave in the ocean. I'm doing the Amy Bernstein wave right now. Um, But someday that will stop. And we don't don't say, oh, my God, what happened to the wave? Where did it go? Right? We say, oh, right. The wave crashed on the shore and is ocean again. But it was always ocean. It was just doing a wave thing. Right? And so for me, that's a very comforting image. It's a very comforting metaphor that we were, we're always ocean. We're just doing this thing for a little while, a very little while. Like the older I get, I realize how short right, it is um, that we have to do this wave thing. Um, and then we crash on the shore, and we go back to being ocean terribly uncomforting for a lot of people, to Laura's point, right? A lot of people... I, I got into an argument with a rabbi last year, a really heated argument, because he said it was irresponsible to not have people believe in an afterlife. He said, I, and I said, so you, you really believe that there's a soul in you? I mean, I knew him well enough. to. I said, you really believe that? And it flies to the to heaven, to the... He says, it doesn't matter what I believe. I said, yes, it does! Like, what are you talking about? You're telling... It doesn't matter what I believe. It's irresponsible not to help people believe that there is something after this. It is just irresponsible. I said it is irresponsible to break something you don't believe. We like, think that whatever he says make other people actually
3: believe that. Right.
1: Exactly. Huh? Oh, if
3: you say so, Rabbi. Okay.
1: But I was like, wow. So okay. Yeah. Like I, I mean, when I get some distance from it, like if you heard my sermon about being triggered. Um, so, like, when I can get some distance from it, because it, the chutzpah of it exactly. is what makes me a little crazy. Um, and so I got all activated. But, but actually, I'm like, okay, I can understand how you could get there. That you really believe it's most important to comfort people as they're dying. Right. That that's the most important thing is to give them solace and comfort. And that my honesty... He's not terribly helpful but, at some times, right? You don't
3: know, and he doesn't know. Yeah. And so that's what I find the most kind of crazy thing about it all is, mm, let the person believe what they want. Maybe, they maybe, maybe they're away, Maybe there's something different. Maybe they are the same thing. And it's, who is he that would be the one to decide? No one's
1: come, come
4: back to, to tell, tell us.
1: Well, he, he seems to really, truly, 100% believe that it is more comforting to people to be told you're going to see all your loved ones again, you're going to heaven, you're going to be with God. Like he really believes that that is more comforting than anything else you could say to people. And if you really believe that, maybe he is. Maybe he is living in line with it, but you know, but I was just it just flipped me out so bad that like you don't believe it and yet you're selling it. Because you believe it makes people feel better? How is that different from the other junk theology out there? You know, that, you know, you have cancer because you couldn't let go of your anger. You you know, it's just like, oh, so if I let go of my anger, I won't get cancer? You know, like, it's just junk theology. And it's like, how how do you do that? You don't have to answer no, no, yeah, no, it's a, it's a fair question, right? That's the fair follow-up question. So, all right, rabbi, so what do you say? And really, I mean, I, this is too simplified, mostly because we're running out of time, but um, really all I can say to anybody is, you won't be alone. I'm here. That's really all I can say, you know. I don't know what's next, but I believe that the universe is constructed in a loving, supportive, amazing way. I believe whatever is next If it's nothing, we came from nothing, and don't, then we won't know that it's nothing. And if it is something, I do fully trust and believe that it's yummy, whatever it is. Because I believe the world is constructed that way, right? I believe in a loving universe and that whatever it is that we do next, it'll be cool. If there's something next, you know what I mean? Like, not that I'm going to have a consciousness to know that I'm doing something cool, but, you know, I just have to believe that returning to source. Is cool because the source must be awesome because look at this right Um, but ultimately all I can say is I'm here with you and and then at the very end at the very end I you know I whisper to people to travel safely and speedily to know that they're held to know that people love them to know that they're safe to know that it's okay that that's really all I because I believe that I do believe that. As hard and sad and awful as it is sometimes, I really do believe ultimately we're safe and it's okay. That we're gonna be okay, whatever it is. Even if it's we just disappear as consciousness. That's okay. We're not designed to live forever. We're not supposed to. Um, but and that's that's all I expect anyone can say to me when it comes. Do you know what I mean? Those, travel safely and Steve rest. Steve Rubin said
4: a wonderful thing a few times to me was it was that our, our bodies die, our relationships never do. Yep. And I found that to be so true. The relationships with people we love are in us forever. And so there's still a lot. Um, at, the,
1: at the grave, I, you know, at the graveside I often read a poem that basically has that in it, you know, that says, love doesn't die, people do. So when all that's left of me is love, give me away. Right? That, you know that love doesn't die. People do. So when all that's left of me is love, give me away. It's continuous, isn't it? Right. right. All right. I was going to do this with you, but now on another way of time. Um, so do <laughs> <to> it <anyway. laughs> I love Laura. Um, so we're looking at we're looking at this parsha uh, between um, Yom Kippur and Sukkot. So that's what uh, Rabbi Pamela Wax was writing about. Um, so go down to the Shabbat of Parshat Haazinu. That second paragraph falls between Yom Kippur and Sukkot, and fittingly contains Moshe's last speech before he dies. In it, Moses is sure to transmit his dying wish that the Israelites recognize God's goodness and rise to their potential for this reason the Midah and this kind of goes David to your point T- to your point we always screw it up as a people in Torah we always screw it up and it always ends with I will take you back in love I will take you back you will figure it out and you will return to me and I God am gracious enough to take you back so that's ultimately the message. We don't see that time, right? We, we don't get there. Moshe dies, Torah's over, we don't get there. But the tradition and the whole biblical worldview is pointing to a time when we will come back and God will take us back so in love. So when bad
0: things happen, God will still take us
1: hundred percent otherwise you're right it's it sucks like why would you sign on to this whole business um for this reason, the midah of responsibility permeates Moshe's message. Despite knowing that he's about to die, he doesn't squander his final speech on matters of personal import, but on communal needs. Like ethical wills or Randy Pausch's last lecture, Moses' final speech says so much about his determination to have a lasting impact on the lives of others. She's, of course, talking about the character, Moshe. Like, she too knows that this is put in the mouth of Moshe, right? But we're talking about the character. We're, we're entering the the literature, we're entering the story. In Hebrew, the word for responsibility is achrayut. So it comes from this shoresh, achar, or acher, right? Um, both of these meanings are pertinent to our understanding of what this word, oh, I just found this a very interesting commentary. Responsibility, i never made this connection. Ahrayut, responsibility, coming from achar or acher. The concept of after, so acher, I mean, achar means after. And acher means other. Some in some congregations, you will hear some people say the Shema, "Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad," yes. and you're like, "Why? What is with the D? What's with the Dalit there?" Right? Because if it's not Echad, it can look like Acher. God is other.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So they're very they're being very clear to say Echad, not Acher. Yep. Jews, what are you going to do? All right. So, um, So the concept of after implies a recognition of the consequences of our behavior. That what we do here and now surely has percussions down the line. Think domino effect, chain reaction, or even butterfly effect. When we look at the concept of other in relationship to responsibility, we understand our connection to and therefore our responsibility for others. Turn the page over. How do these two different root meanings of the word achrayut connect to each other? In Everyday Holiness, Alan Marinus wrote, when we think of responsibility as deriving from awareness of after, contemplating and including in your calculations the possible consequences of your actions requires that you overcome the urge to satisfy your ego and your desires right now. In regard to the second derivation of akhrayut from achera meaning other, to live a life in which you actively reach out to bear the burden of your neighbor requires that you quiet the demanding voice of desire and ego in order that you can hear the voice and feel the need of the other and respond. Though these roots, achar and acher, may be different, they both connect up to the same stock, responsibility. It stands for and reflects a central thrust of spiritual growth, which is to rise up and beyond living in our small self, who is interested only in gratification in the present, to evolve into the larger self, who from its elevated vantage point can see and take in both the larger sweep of time and the living presence of others. Responsibility is both the means and the fruit of that evolution. So this beautiful teaching about achar uh, and acher, and that Moshe is trying to pass that on to the people. Um, he suspends his own concern for his own life, essentially being you know, ended over in order to um, share, through poetry, this truth with the people. Poetry is how we communicate, right? Really important and profound truths. So, in that spirit, I'm going to ask Sarah Moskowitz to share uh, her poem as we come to the end of the book, the end of the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to ask Sarah Moskowitz to share her poem, My People.
2: My people are the people of the book, the people of many books, books that have been banned, burned, buried, Hidden in milk cans, caves, secret closets and compartments, rediscovered and reconstructed. My people treasure old parchment scrolls preserved for centuries, the handwritten script still clear, each perfect letter formed by dedicated strokes of the skilled scribe's sure clean hand. My people cherish words, metaphors, stories and laws, interpretation and reinterpretation, commentaries upon commentary, strong and subtle differences of opinion preserved for future generations for who can tell what change of view and favor time may bring. My people are wildly varied. There are fanatic true believers, mild identifiers, as well as burning rebels, naysayers, and revolutionaries. There are philosophers and scientists, inventors, discoverers, and geniuses of every stripe, leaders, healers, artists, architects, and engineers teachers, singers, poets, and plain folk. My people guard and hold and caress words as one would care for tender babes from generation to generation.
0: You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kahilat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California.